This is part of a series that we're calling The Dark Side of the Moon, the elements of process and investing we don't always like to spend time on, but have a huge cost if we avoid them. We'll cover risk, selling disciplines, red flagging, all along with our friends. I hope you find it a useful trip. See you on the other side. Today, we're continuing on the Dark Side of the Moon series, and we're with Steve Salopek, small cap and tech fund manager turned university professor at The Ohio State University. We're here to explore how we can better approach thesis threats, discussions and investigations into what can and will go wrong with a thesis or a stock position. So Pip starts us off with some ideas for methods around red flagging, and then Steve will tell us more about how they built in red flagging right into their process, saving them valuable time and pain. So stay tuned to see also how Steve's techniques in his second career as a professor can be parlayed into investment meetings. I hope you enjoy it. So this conversation is one about process, but a very specific part. We used to um, have these, we call them predetermined game plans. And there were two key components. One was, uh, well, there was the thesis. And then we would have um, the burning questions, sort of our active research map, and then something called thesis threats. And that was never really that strong. And there was this really important change that we made um, in changing that thesis threats to something called red flagging. And that's what we're going to talk about today because red flagging is about addressing the probability of um, downside. You know, we, we would call them, you know, a, a, a stock kind of imploding or something like that. These negative surprises that happen. And it's aimed to really address and get at the heart of a, a tendency we have in the industry, which is to systematically underanalyze downside scenarios. We gravitate to the positive stories, to the you know companies that are doing really well, um, and forget or intentionally or unintentionally decide not to discuss when things are going to go wrong, not if, but when. So Pip, will you talk a little bit more about red flagging. And we also have Steve Salopek here with us today, who's going to add in with some of his experience. Um, so Pip, why don't you start us off? Uh, sure. Uh, red flagging intentionally is an active verb that we're putting into a process. When I hear risks or thesis threats, historically being in our industry, I think of the word softballs, you know, oh, the risk is that they're gonna to grow too fast and they won't be able to handle the growth and their margins will dip just a little while they grow faster. <laughs> and that's like, come on, seriously. So I think we, there's a lopsided application of our brilliance as investors towards good stuff and talking about good stuff. And we don't spend as much time looking at potential downsides in either the conversations or our analysis. And I'll give you an example of specificity that I'm talking about that you do on the long side, but oftentimes we do, don't do on the short side. H.H. Uh, Gregg, Bryn, you and I worked on this company a long, long time ago. And we went into the model and the cells to find the downside. Um, if the company did that, how would management respond? If they came up 5% short 
on the revenue line, would they be down 30% on the earnings line or would they be down 7%? Like that's red flagging. Now we were actually doing that because we were short HH Craig, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> but it's the same. Like, are you bringing your specificity of brilliance and is your system set up to bring the specificity of brilliant analysis to the downside? Otherwise, back to Mo Pickens warning as golfers, when bad things happen and you don't have a plan for it, those things aren't going to be minor things. Those are going to be torpedoes. They're really going to sink you. And you only need a few of those each year to really like crush your performance. So sort of that's where I start from, Brent, is this, this lopsided application of brilliance and coming up with an active method to counter it. Or as a phrase that I like to use is we want to circumvent our humanness. Meaning that we're not, that we're not inclined to talk about some of these downside scenarios. Yeah, people, when you get, when you get home from, from work, does your, your partner, kids or something, do they want to tell you about like the bad thing? <laughs> Sometimes, yes, I guess I, I take that back actually. But people generally don't like to talk about things that they're really worried about. And then you set up a system in our industry that is tilted that way culturally you may want to offset that culture with a discipline that will get around the habit that you don't think serves you and your clients well. That's how we think of discipline. Discipline's a habit that you put in, a process you put in when your current habits are undermining your efficacy. So to me, that's what red flagging is. It's a whole intention to re reside the lopsidedness, so to speak, of our tendencies. So what are a few ways that we can do that? Sure. Well, um, and, and there's infinite ways. First off, we, we want to reward red flagging. So for instance, and I'm just going to throw out you know, a few ideas, and there's many more. Um, but instead of having a devil's advocacy five-minute, hey, what are the risks? Why not have a separate meeting after you've done all the good stuff? like two days later, that's just oriented towards red flagging. And have the analysts or whoever's presenting an idea demonstrate their street cred that they've really done their thinking and their work about what could go wrong here. You could even, like, yeah, we joke that maybe there should be a, a reward for the best red flagger that's given every three months a trip to Hawaii or something, something well, big. That's a really important point because the sometimes the reward systems get in the way of that being an effective meeting, this like hypothetical red flagging meeting, or even any red flagging discussion. In a lot of scenarios, mm. if I'm the analyst, I so-called kind of own that recommendation. And if I'm suggesting that we should buy it or buy more or be positive on it, how can how can I then also bring up the downside scenarios. I'm yeah, saying, of course I, I can, it's not neither or, but I think that's sometimes where a lot of analysts live. Um, boy, you've just said a whole bunch of things. So there's a story in 1997, someone in our investment staff who had just joined like four months prior, his name was Fred Luber. He was in a meeting and he just said, I don't hear any conviction. Like he, mm -hmm. he nice, really nice guy but he had just lost it. Like, and everyone's like, what happened to Fred? It's like, when you buy a stock, it should be like you're giving birth to a child. And it's like, not that I know what that does. I still remember it, but, but it should be like that in your conviction. And like, it should be that. And I think we get confused 
that conviction is a presentation methodology <laughs> mm. as opposed to an internal capacity. And so when people say, speak with conviction, it's like the directions towards presenting. So mm -hmm. if we say that enough to people, it's like, I have to sell and pound the table and do certain theatrics. Otherwise, and here's where some problems lie, I won't get representation in the portfolio. So I can't wait to hear what Steve says. If your reward system of, I don't have anything in the portfolio. Well, if you're a lazy bum, then maybe you shouldn't have the job. But we're working with anyone listening to this podcast is not lazy. So if your reward system is like, I have to have representation. If I have seven stocks in the portfolio or I have 12 stocks in the portfolio, as soon as you hear that, like alarm should fling, like, why does that matter? Are you, is representation in the portfolio a method of like your reward structure either specifically or not? Um, and also one of the things that we did at Cobra Ventures is Bryn, for example, never got rewarded based on whether the stock went up or down. That was my job as a portfolio manager. I said, your job is to bring amazing analysis. And if we are surprised on the downside, that is really, really bad analysis. We sort of think like, oh, this thing happened. Who would have known? And I'm like, no, systematically. And the result was in just those few little changes, we rarely had blowups, rarely had blowups because I wasn't rewarding Bryn on like the stock going up or representation. I was like, is your thinking really good? Is the red flagging really superior to what you're normally seeing? If so, chances are, we're not gonna be surprised by some downside that suddenly pops up. Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it, you know, as you both know, I spent, you know, an entire career in, you know, in small cap and technology. And, you know, when I, you know, when I sit back and think about it, I, you know, I had clients who were hiring me basically to take risk. Hmm. And so, you know, I always approached that from the, you know, and my, you know, approach to that, I think was influenced very early in my career where, you know, the majority, you know, I, I spent the majority of my career and, you know, your, your clients are, you know, primarily equity investors. And, you know, I had the experience of actually spending time with debt investors and one of the early things that I noticed was that risk was the first thing that they talked about because, you know, their approach is, look, I need to get paid. And, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, it's all about that risk. And then, you know, the next half hour, you go to an, an equity meeting and, you know, it's, you know, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, Saturday Night Live skit where, you know, Debbie Downer. Yeah. Where the first talk of, well, what is the risk? You hear that, ah, ah. you know, where it's, you know, the Debbie Downer approach to that, or, or that, that's really how risk was, you know, viewed in equity investing. And, you know, when I think of, you know, when I started, I didn't call it red flagging at the time, but, you know, I always noticed in the equity world, you know, as soon as the risk management guy comes down the hallway, everybody's like, party's over. And, you know, as I thought about and, you know, our process evolved over time and, you know, we as human beings and as equity investors, we don't like to talk. We don't like to think about the downside. You know, when I was in graduate school, probably one of the only cases that I remember from graduate school was the famous, you know, Benihana, where, you know, you go to a Benihana restaurant and you are actually in this process. 
Mm. And you're having a great experience, but if you actually look at how it was designed and kind of the, you know, at the end of the process, there's a reason they, they served you sherbet in a glass at the end of your meal, because that oven is hot and that sherbet is gonna melt. And most, most of their customers, when they're done with their dessert, that's basically their prompt to leave. And so it results in the, in, in the restaurant being able to turn over the tables much faster. And so as I thought about, you know, kind of this, this concept of, you know, and I read hundreds of, you know, research reports and the risk was always, you know, two lines at the end. And I started to think, you know, why is that? And it's because, you know, we as humans have this, we don't want to think, we, we want to be positive. We don't want to think about the risk. And so as I thought back to the kind of that Benihana concept is, how can I actually incorporate risk into the process and it not just be this two sentences at the end? And so, you know, really what, you know, where we kind of ended up eventually was, you know, there were red flagging, there was red flagging built into each part of the process. So, you know, in a case of an HH Greg, uh, you know, our, our philosophy was, you know, simply good companies, good businesses that are at, you know, at the right price. So especially in small cap investing, you know, the first question is, is this a good business? HH Greg is a very low return on capital, very thin margin business. And when, you know, we actually had quantitative metrics that said, look, making more money is better than making less. <laughs> and so if I'm in a business that makes a 1% net margin, or I can be in a business that makes a 20% net margin, there's a difference in those businesses. And so, you know, without going into a two-hour diatribe about risk is what we tried to do was build the red flagging into each part of the process. And so it wasn't just this conversation at the end about, you know, what is the downside here? I have less risk if I buy a good business that earns high returns. One thing that I'll throw in is you kept using the word we and knowing you and your team for a long period of time, I'd, I'd suggest that you're one of the best teams that I noticed or observed in an industry that really has terrible teamwork, frankly. There's a lot of isolation and all that. Not that there's a lot of industries that have fabulous teamwork, but your, your teamwork was really high. One of the other issues that I see, and I'd love to play is, is a lot of red flagging doesn't happen through the process because the person is doing the process on their own and then they're presenting to everyone else at the very end. Hmm. And they're supposed to get people excited about the idea, not like, why are we having this conversation on the hold that you're going to tell me about or that we shouldn't do it. I, it seems like by incorporating the whole team in the process all throughout, you're gonna get better red flagging, but also it's gonna be ingrained in the system. Otherwise it's gonna be that thing that that sherbet that's put on at the end of the meal. Yeah. I mean. You know, that was that was an intended consequence. And, you know, what I would tell you is in, in this, you know, takes a step back to the, you know, to the culture. And, you know, I when I looked at a lot of really successful small cap managers and I looked at some that, you know, that weren't so successful. You know, one of the things that I you know admitted about myself early on was that, you know, as the head of this process, 
I can't know everything about a bank, about, a, about an industrial company, about a technology company. And, you know, we on Wall Street had this tendency to, we put everything into a sector and a silo. Well, the world doesn't work that way. <laughs> and so as, you know, as I thought about that and I said, all right, you know, what's happening in the hotel sector and the financial sector, it does actually have an impact on what's going on in these other sectors. Well, I, you know, I've made this decision to cut the world up into these silos. Well, the reality is that the world doesn't work in a silo. And so, you know, part of our, a big part of our culture was, you know, I wanted our, our person doing financials to actually have a conversation with our person doing industrials because industrial companies, they access the capital markets, they borrow money. And so I always thought that was a really important part of the conversation. And especially for me to process that in terms of, you know, managing the overall portfolio. Yeah, it's if, if you can build in through the process because of teamwork that is oriented, intelligent, insightful, et cetera. So often Brendan and I are working with groups where they say, hey, our morning meeting's really dull because, and we'll say, because 80% of the people don't have a job in the meeting while the PM's actually talking to the healthcare analyst. And we drop back and say, well, everyone's fundamentally an analyst. So we need everyone to have a role in a job in the meeting <laughs> that they're charged with. So that when the industrials analyst asks the hotel analyst, you know, have you thought about this? That's a normalcy. And you create the teamwork because everyone recognizes, hey, I can ask a great question because I'm A, an analyst, and B, the SIC codes don't separate us really in the world. Um, does that make sense to you? Oh, it makes absolute sense. I'm not sure either of you know it, but you know, my, my first job out of college, I was actually in a rotational program. And, my rota and in that rotational program, my first rotation was through the, through the human resource department. Yes, me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I will tell you, it, it, it's one of the things, too, I think that that really changed my career. Not that I, you know, it was not the highlight of my career, but it was in the compensation area. And if there's one thing that I learned in that in that, you know, in that experience is that a lot of the success in this business is going to be tied to how you structure your compensation. Your, your, because at the end of the day, human beings do what they are paid to do. And, the, and I think one of the most important things that we did in terms of our process was actually structuring our compensation uh, programs, taking that into account. And you can say, all right, we need group interaction. And this is a very important part of our process. Everybody, and, and you hear this a lot. If it's not tied into that compensation plan, it's not gonna happen. Because at the end of the day, people will say, yeah, I understand this is an important part of, you know, of being here and of my job. At the end of the day, you have to figure out how to tie what you want at the end to how someone is being compensated. I think so, some managers wouldn't even know where to start on that in our industry. Can you say a little bit more about any of those elements that, that you baked into compensation? Yeah. You know, it was two things The you know, the first was, you know, there were really, you know, three parts of it where, 
the majority of the plans, and, I, you know, and I've seen a lot of these, you know, they are 100% basically, you know, performance, how did your stocks do? And, you know, when we looked at that, you know, it, it's, it's motivating a very, what that's doing is it's motivating a very siloed kind of existence to an analyst, where I understand this is what, this is what my job is, this is how I'm going to be measured. And this is how, you know, this is what's going to be the measure of my success. You know, there, you know, from our standpoint, there were two problems with that. You know, one is, you know, at the end of the day, when I go out to a client at the end of the year and say, you know what, we had a really bad year. And if one of these silos had a really good year, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, the client is still, you know, we have not achieved the client objective. And so, you know, the, the compensation plans really had kind of three tiers to them. It was individual performance, but was what incented that interaction between, you know, between individuals on the team was that, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to be successful or, mm-hmm. you know, or we're not going to have clients. You know, we played around with it a lot because it took us a while to get the right balance. But, you know, after a, you know, working with it for a number of years, you know, that's really, you know, you're balancing the individual versus the whole. It reminds me of class participation or at the beginning of the semester, the teacher will say, and you're going to be measured on class participation. It'll be whatever. How do you actually, now that you're a professor, how do you build this participation thing into your siloed students of, do you attempt to build this in with the students as well? Oh, you know, absolutely. And And are they surprised? yeah, I, I, you know, I'll tell you the first the first day of class, you can see the you know the looks on their faces with, uh, you know, as I go into as you know, and as I thought about how, you know how I was going to teach is you know, you're you're in a class of fifty students, you're always going to have five who are you know will participate a great deal, and so as I started to think about that, I said you know what, and that's people raising their hand, and I flipped that process around. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to randomly pull out a card and have a discussion with somebody. And, you know, what I've found by doing that is, you know, at first, you know, there's this reaction of, oh, I don't want to be called on. And part of it is how you manage the process of, you know, it's not a, did you read that article? It's, hey, this is going on in the world. Let's talk about this. And, you, you know, what I've noticed is, you know, and part of it is, you know, is how you manage it is, you know, three weeks into the class, you know, the introvert in the back actually wants to be part of the conversation. I was thinking in uh, back to Brynn and I in morning meetings, giving people jobs and expectations. Now you have a group of students who are actually paying money to sit in your class. That's arguably harder than the situation when you have the morning meeting you could easily say, hey, I'm going to call on anyone at random times because we're all professionals. We all get paid. We're all involved. We're all got our attention here. And, you know, I want to hear at any given point in time what's going on with people's thinking. That's a very reasonable <laughs> request at a professional level where people are being paid lots and lots of money. Yeah. You, you know, I think, you know, I think after a, a very short period of time that, you know, all of the individuals in that class start to see it as, you know, you can manage the positive or you can manage to the negative. And, 
you know, so it is something I, you know, admittedly, you have to be very careful with it. But, you know, I found that if you managed it to the positive, that, you know, it, it's the stress reliever to the introvert that, you know, that doesn't want to participate at the beginning. Well, that relates back to another element that we want to design around with red flagging, which is um, being mindful of introverts. Yeah, not torturing, having a process that doesn't torture introverts. So when Steve said, hey, that introvert in the back of the class, halfway through the class, they suddenly they want to be part of the conversation. Uh, that popped out to me because you could imagine so many people going uh, becoming a an research analyst, <coughs> thinking their job isn't going to be involving selling for God's sake. So they hear this, you know, they get this great review, your, your work's really good, but you got to sell it more to everyone. And they go, oh my God, this is the nightmare to me. So I think about how do we create systems where we don't torture the analyst with a selling component. And I think this is really important as well. Um, we were with one client about five, six years ago where uh, part of their process is these big reports that are put together, like the whole team reads them and then they have this big meeting mm. where the analyst is sort of on the defense which is another thing we want to weed out. We want to get rid of any like defending thinking is absolutely ridiculous. Um, we'll come back to that. But I believe in sharing best thinking, but not defending. It creates us, them, whole. So, but the analyst was sort of like a doctoral thesis. Here comes 13 smart people that have read your piece and they're going to ask questions like this. And I said, how long does that meeting go? <clears throat> and he said, oh, it's, it's a serious meeting, usually about an hour and a half. And I said, oh boy. And he goes, oh boy. I said, the longer that meeting goes, the more it's going to favor great presentation as opposed to great thinking. I remember American politicians are often like made fun of by British politicians because the American politicians couldn't handle being in parliament live debate, couldn't handle it. And we don't want to create debates when we're identifying stocks to invest in. We want to operate as a team. So the first is how do we design our system, whether it's writing, whether it's so we create a team, so we get rid of defensiveness. So that introvert that dreamed of this life of just thinking and identifying all of a sudden isn't in this horror show of having to sell their ideas and defend their ideas, et cetera. One thing I'm hearing is that it's aiming, these processes are aiming to work ourselves away from the duality of positive or negative and just look at from a more neutral stance, maybe the thing that always helped me was, was looking at conviction level and like looking at the portfolio and we would order it essentially by, you know, highest position, largest position to smallest position by, if I had to pick one word by conviction and that could change. That was fine. If the conviction changed, we would take the position size down. It wasn't like, Oh, now it, now, our thesis is negative. We didn't have to make this emotional switch. It was just, it was more moderated than that. And it wasn't in positive or negative. It was in the neutral territory, which I think is a lot more powerful for clear thinking. I was thinking about a couple other elements that, that can help red flagging become more active. So one of the concerns is if I do really good red flagging, I'm going to talk myself out of every position, you know, <clears throat> and that's not necessarily true. It just means you'll be more informed. So the competition for capital approach 
says, we're going to be investing 100% of this money. We got to figure out how many stocks, it, but none of these things are perfect. So we set up the expectation that if you haven't told me the imperfect part, like you haven't done your work, there's a orientation that uh, of devil's advocacy in our industry, which is, I think, not even a poor man's version of red flagging. I think it's, uh, it's um, not very effective. I tried to put in red flag uh, devil's advocacy in 1997 in the investment firm I worked with. No one of 18 people, only one other person wanted to do it. I couldn't figure out why. I was like, <laughs> we're doing devil's advocacy. Isn't everyone in? Like, you know, this will help out. You know, my, my thinking was at that point, devil's advocacy would be a good thing. Well, and any I, devil's advocacy conversation I've been a part of goes directly to showmanship and intellectual jousting. And it's, they get very performative and aggressive. Oh, yeah. And arguably, um, I'm, that's actually an area that I can do really well myself. So I don't want to even have, I don't want to delude myself because my presentation skills are really good. <laughs> I don't want to start believing my own nonsense because I can, you know, talk it and present it and all that. I didn't want that. But the reason that people didn't want the devil's advocacy, I figured out pretty quickly, is it would soon become uh, tit for tat. Okay, Steve, I won't bug you on your stock today. But tomorrow, don't bug me on my stock. So it imploded. But I think the job of an analyst is to do the whole thing. Not, I just do the really good part and then someone has to check me. If you're going to have a devil's advocate, you should have the other as well. You should have like, I don't know, a heavenly advocate or you know, someone else to, second eyes we used to call it, Brynn, or fresh eyes. That makes total sense. But to like segregate this out of, okay, these people are going to be, um, are going to be looking at at just the downside seem ridiculous. Pip, if you think about, you know, if you think about investment process, you know, there, there are many steps to an investment process, you know, and that term and, you know, Bryn, you know, Bryn made a fantastic point where that devil's advocate just has a very negative connotation and, it, you know, it evokes this reaction. And, you know, my, my, you know, I'm married to a lovely person who is very gifted and, you know, she has this way of terming things that like devil's advocate, she can put that in an acceptable way. And, you know, what we would term that was, you know, disproving your thesis. And, you know, as, as, you know, as I think about investment process, why do we disprove the thesis at the end? You know, rather than why are we not disproving the thesis along every step of the process rather than just at the end. We're here to be almost like a scientific method. Yeah. That's why we call it a thesis too, specifically, although most in the investment world don't know how to structure a thesis like a scientist would. So getting that skill down, okay, now we're gonna go out in the real world and test this thesis in an unbiased fashion where, not to say every scientist is unbiased, but the great scientists, they're completely removed from the result because they believe so much in the scientific method. So similar here, if we believe in our method, whatever that one is, we don't have to come in or at any part thinking we need to be a quote unquote cheerleader for something or et cetera, et cetera. We'll still have human biases that our friends can help us with, but there'll be, how do we yank out anything that is result over the scientific in quotes process that we believe in more so. Because that's what you're selling when you go out to your clients, Steve. This is repeatable. Yeah. 
And I think too that that you know that disproving the thesis at every step in the process, it actually introduces some measure of efficiency into your process as well. Because think about an HH gray. And you know we were you know strictly long investors. Okay, so we have a thesis about HH Gregg and the growth in retail and the growth in electronics retail. I could just, if you disprove that thesis at the first level, it says this is a bad business. <laughs> That's actually introduced. A, now I don't have to get to the end of the process and say, all right, we have this case, you know, let's disprove this. Yeah, saves valuable time. Any last thoughts, um, Steve or Pip? I uh, yeah. First is um, a couple other to dos. One is build a bench. By having a bench, you never feel like you have to stay in a position if the red flags are telling you that they're pretty high. You build in a competition that there's a ready player to jump into the portfolio. Now, something that's more of a Matthias Hallwich creative ideas, give an actual reward system for the most insightful red flagger, put it in the comments, put it in the reviews, put it in that. Yeah, but we're not going to try and stop the selling culture. That'd be very difficult. Well, that'll take a long time. What we can introduce is we are a red flagging culture. There's um, most of this, I think, goes back to um, in our portion of the investment universe, as opposed to the fixed incomes that Steve knows well as well. People don't like to talk about, you know, the deep fears, failings. They don't want to talk about COVID may last 18 months. They don't want to take their people into a place of survival. That, that's really, really bad. And so our tendencies are not to have process that do it. I love this quote from Patchak Rinpoche that hits on this. Most people think discipline, a word that we like using about discipline is a process or a method that gets around a habit that doesn't serve us well. Most people think discipline means rules, like do this, don't do that. But real discipline is noticing and accepting your own faults and mistakes without judgment, then having the dignity or the willpower to change. Once we accept that we have this tendency, there's a thousand things we can do. For a conversation about raising the red flag, I was surprised to come away with how many ways there are to manage this to the positive, as Steve said. By stepping back and seeing where my pitfalls are, I can then start to turn it around and manage to the positive, rather than putting myself in a place where I have to spend a lot of energy and be so conscious of my biases, wasting that valuable, finite willpower, as Daniel Kahneman would say, on constantly fighting myself. And that same thing could be said for processes that apply to team. So whether it's structuring reward systems differently or deprioritizing the showmanship of selling a stock to an investment committee, I hope this gave you some ideas to building red flagging into your process and your methods this year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>